Mark Milky, PhD, and that's Milky with an E at the end, not a Y, uh, is a public policy analyst. He's a columnist. He's an author. He's written six books and dozens of studies published both throughout Canada and internationally. His newest book, The Victim Cult, How the Culture of Blame Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilization, great title, <laughs> is an Amazon bestseller. It's the topic of our conversation today. He just released the American edition earlier this month, and I'm super excited to get to that. He's also the founder of a new think tank called the Aristotle Foundation, which I was excited to learn the name of, as my podcast is named after a Socrates reference. Um, and Aristotle, Socrates, Greek philosophy nerd stuff. Uh, so um, on top of all that, most importantly of all, of course, is that uh, Dr. Mark Milkey is my uncle. Uh, <laughs> and so I've known him for a very long time, uh, further back than I can remember since I was a wee lad. Uh, he's been a mentor of mine and is a man full of uh, great education. Uh, he's a phenomenal researcher, a great writer, full of wisdom, wrote a great book. I finished it last week and I'm excited to share with you um, our conversation about his newest book. So. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Hemlock Podcast. As I said, I'm super excited to get to my interview with Mark Milkey, author of The Victim Cult. A um, couple things first, quickly, thank you so much for watching. Appreciate you tuning in. As always, um, your support means a ton. So if you enjoy it, please like, subscribe, share, all those things. Sharing is the biggest thing. Uh, Five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, especially the written ones. I love it when you guys do that. That helps a ton. Uh, and like attracting advertisers and sponsors and stuff is um, is five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. So thank you so much for those. Um, also, hemlockpodcast.com. We'd love for you to become a member because you get ad-free episodes, exclusive content, mailbag questions, live hangouts, all that kind of stuff. I write articles and stuff a lot. Uh, I release them always uh, first to members on hemlockpodcast.com and then for the public later. So you get early access to all that kind of stuff. You get with an all-access membership, all-access, I said that with a bit of a draw, with an all-access membership, you get the base water bottle. Um, also wearing the based sweater, which uh, might look a little tacky, where featuring that much of my own merch, but I bought this sweater kind of as a test um, from the manufacturer, and it's the comfiest sweater I own. I'm not even I'm not even saying that because it's my own merch, but it really is. I never take it off anymore, um, which is kind of gross. So, anyways, hemlockpodcast.com. <laughs> check out the merch. Check out the memberships. That all helps support the podcast. Appreciate that a ton. Um, with no further ado, let's get to the interview. Mark Milkey, The Victim Cult. This is a really good one. We talk about a lot of stuff. Um, I already talk a lot about how uh, victim ideology and how virtue signaling um, wrecks everything. <laughs> and so uh, Mark just does that with uh, much more poise and much more research and um, in a much more eloquent way than I ever could. <laughs> so um, this is a great conversation. We had a lot of fun. It's a bit of a longer one, um, which is great because there's a ton of content. We get into a lot of stuff. 
We get into everything from critical race theory. We go over the Virginia election. We talk about Donald Trump because he and I disagree about Donald Trump. We get into Justin Trudeau, everyone's favorite person in Canada. Um, <laughs> on top of a lot of other really good stuff, great examples of victim ideology and how it perpetuates throughout history and ruins everything every time it crops up. So great interview. Have a lot of fun. Let me know what you think. And uh, with no further ado, Mark Milkey, everybody. Um, I'm going to I'm going to confess, I'm going to have a hard time uh, figuring out what to call you today, because since I was two years old, I've called you Uncle Mark. Um, so is it Dr. Milky, Mr. Milky? What do I call you today? Mark is just fine. Fabulous. Mark is good. So I'll drop the uncle for today. OK, that'll be hard to do. I've been conditioned for for almost 30 years now. So we'll, well, uh, <laughs> it's a good conditioning in this weird, uh, this weird age of, I don't know, um, trolls and the rest of it. So it's, it's yeah, it's a nice habit to have, is it? But, you know, we're both adults now, so Mark is fine. Thanks. True, Mark. Sounds good. Sounds good. Perfect. So I read your book last week in preparation for this. This is called uh, The Victim Cult, the U.S. edition. Uh, came out earlier this month. And I'll just be open with my bias off the top. Uh, I really enjoyed the book. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time to to sit down and uh, and talk about it with me for a while. So thank you so much for uh, for taking the time. Thank you for um, having me, Robert. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I hope you come back. Um, okay, so let's just jump straight in. Um, maybe start by int introducing yourself. Um, who is Mark Milkey? What's your background in, in politics and philosophy and kind of delving into these types of issues? Sure. So um, I guess the best way to describe what I do is uh, it's kind of like being a professor, but without teaching. Um, so I did a bit of that when I was doing a PhD at the University of Calgary, where I live now. But uh, look, born and raised in Kelowna, some of your audience or a good chunk of your audience may be British Columbian. So um, grew up as a kid in Kelowna. And uh, I tell people I should have quit high school, worked at McDonald's and saved up for a down payment on property because I'd be rich now. <laughs> um, you know, Kelowna's changed a lot since I grew up there. But uh, yeah, my PhD is in international relations and political philosophy. I've worked for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation early in my career. A um, couple of think tanks, including the Frontier Center and Fraser Institute. Uh, most recently, the Canadian Energy Center, which kind of looked at uh, energy issues in Canada and abroad. And I'm starting a new think tank called the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, basically to hopefully bring some reason back into debates and examine issues like democracy and civilization, which I think uh, are in a bit, uh, bit in, in trouble these days, is perhaps the best way to put it without overstating mm -hmm. it. But yeah, I've written six books. And so The Victim Cult, um, U.S. edition just came out earlier this month, as you mentioned. And the Canadian edition uh, came out uh, a while back, and it did very well in Canada. So um, that's uh, kind of where I'm at at present in terms of a career and, and this book, which was uh, more work, I think, than, than anything else I've done in my life. But uh, <laughs> I like it, but like you, I'm biased. Yeah, no, fair enough. I can tell by the length of the uh, the citation section in the book that uh, there's a lot of research, obviously, that went into this. So um, it was fantastic. Um, so actually, and I appreciate, I haven't heard the name of your new, the new foundation at the Aristotle Foundation, you said, yeah? It is, yeah, the Aristotle Foundation. It's not public yet, okay. uh, other than, you know, talks like this. Right. But uh, we hope to launch it perhaps sometime later in 2022. The conference awesome. Jack Mintz is on the board. We've got a, a couple of CEOs. But the idea really is to look at some issues perhaps that are not looked at by other think tanks, which do great work in economics. Yeah. But um, really go, going back to ancient Greece, of course, where democracy first started, and then questions from the ancient Greeks onward um, through, you know, Western civilization at the very least and right. others. Uh, what is the good life, right? And that's, yeah. uh, and in part, that's why I also wrote The Victim Cult. 
um, because you know, much, you know, if you're familiar with history, um, anybody who does any reading in history will soon discover there's not much new in, in human history. Mm -hmm. You know, the author of Ecclesiastes figured this out, I don't know, 2,500 years ago or 3,000 years ago when that was written. And, um, and that's a bit of what I say in the victim cult is one has to be careful about uh, dwelling on a grievance for too long, not just as an individual, because this isn't a Tony Robbins one, two, three, how to solve your personal problems book. This is uh, really, though, a look at kind of a grievance culture, the grievance culture as it applies to societies and nations. And mm -hmm. uh, history can, get, can, can give you some context for that. Uh, it, it is really dangerous when, when people dwell in grievances for too long and then really kind of form cohorts or, as I call right. them, cults in this particular instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. Actually, I'm not sure if we've actually talked about the name of my podcast, but uh, my podcast is named for a contemporary of Aristotle's, um, Hemlock being the poison that Socrates drank um, when they decided that he should kill himself. Um, so uh, maybe a morbid thing to name your podcast after, but hey. Um, <laughs> it, it gets attention, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. One of the, th one of the thoughts I had actually um, reading this was um, it is a really ancient. You talk about Cain in the book going as far back as Cain, which is as far back as human history goes, according to some people. Right. Um, and um, and I think you look at examples. Um, I was reading the story of uh, Tiberius Gracchus in Rome. Right. Part of the reason a lot of the violence and resentment that came out of that was um, basically decided to make this rule of uh, not letting landowners own more than what was called 500 Ugra, um, which I believe is about half a square mile of land. You couldn't own more than that. And this is generations after land had been purchased and bought and sold and passed down to kids and all this kind of stuff. And then decided to instigate this rule. Well, that just generations later trying to fix a problem like that. All that did was breed resentment and violence um, that perpetuated for generations and eventually led to it was one of the contributing factors in, in Rome's fall. Right. Um, and you go into those examples, you go into Bunch, you go into uh, Hutus and Tutsis, you go into um, the Palestinian-Israel uh, conflict. Um, a lot of great examples. I wanted to talk a little bit about your political ideology. Um, because especially from the first the first paragraph or two of this book, um, it might be tough for people to tell initially right out the bat because um, you, in one paragraph, you come almost you come off almost like social justice warrior because you're talking about historic injustice to indigenous peoples, black Americans, women. And then in the next paragraph, uh, you could be labeled like a men's rights activist because you're talking about how men have like experienced most violence in history have worked the most dangerous jobs, have had the lion's share of fighting in wars, all that kind of stuff. Um, you attack Donald Trump in one sentence, and oh, I'd love to come back to that because I slightly disagree with your opinion of him, and that's totally okay. But I want to come I, back. I'd yeah. say critique as opposed sure. to attack. Sure, sure, that's absolutely a fair, a fair, uh, a fair clarification. Um, and then you're, you're attacking like the college students he was attacking in the next paragraph. So you you really do come across as as a centrist, which I think um, I, I think a lot of conservatives in general come off as centrist because the the Overton window has shifted so much. Um, but if you had to describe your ideology, your politics, um, how would you do that? Well, um, maybe pragmatic as opposed, as opposed to ideological. Mm. Look, I, I guess I'd be a classical liberal or these days a small C conservative, right? Um, what you would label someone, I guess, depends on where you sit. If you're in Europe, I'm a classical liberal, right? Or liberal. Right. Um, if you're in the United States, I'm small C conservative, same with Canada, philosophically, mm. in the sense that, look, um, Edmund Burke, the famous, you know, uh, parliamentarian from the 18th century, um, who wrote Reflections on the Revolution in France, um, and is thought of as really the, perhaps one of the, you know, conservatives because of that, took an approach that I think is valuable, which is evolutionary as opposed to revolutionary, right? Most revolutions in human history don't end well, 
even the American Revolution could be argued to be a conservative you know, evolution. They, well, they wanted their rights back um, as British citizens or English citizens. They said, listen, you know, you've taken our rights, King George III, we want them back. We want taxation with representation. Uh, so even the American Revolution, I would argue, <clears throat> is not like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. But I would describe my views as, as you know, Berkey and conservative evolution over revolution is the preference. Uh, what's tried and true, um, you know, but you have to be open to ideas, which Burke was, and classical liberal in the sense of uh, I think the individual matters. When someone mm -hmm. comes to make it concrete, when someone applies for a job in government or a business, I don't think their skin color, character, gender, anything like that, you know, ethnicity should be looked at. Not 50 mm -hmm. years ago, not today. So I'm very much a liberal, um, classical yeah. liberal in the sense of Martin Luther King. I care <laughs> about the contact, content of your character. I don't care about how you look. Um, and that's actually fading today again because of identity right. politics, which I get mm -hmm. to a little bit in the book. Um, yeah. But the book itself is really not ideological in the sense. I don't think it's right wing. I don't think it's left wing, which may confuse people, as, as you mm. initially pointed out already. Um, <laughs> I am examining a cultural phenomenon, which goes way beyond mm -hmm. whether one considers himself woke, you know, progressive or conservative right. or liberal. And again, those definitions can really mean different things to different people. So I, generally in my work, I try not to go there. Instead, I try and pose questions like, if this is the end you're seeking, are you sure the means get you to that end? Because right. uh, people can believe all sorts of things uh, and they can call themselves and others all sorts of labels. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't necessarily get to the heart of the question. And I've got a political science brain, uh, which means, uh, and as I mentioned, a political philosophy degree. And my, I suppose, uh, central concern is um, the potential abuse of power. You're familiar with Lord Acton and the phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that's true of almost any, any individual, uh, most likely. And, um, and the reason for that is power is really addictive and it inflates your sense of importance and it also inflates, inflates your sense of what you're able to do. And we've seen this in human history. And of course, one person who has all the power, who has all the cards, so to speak, as a tyrant, an autocrat or a tyrant um, could, in theory, do great good if they're God, but most of us aren't. None of us are really, you know. In fact, um, and so one has to be very careful. Um, so my mm -hmm. my concern is uh, the concentration of power, um, and we've developed systems, especially in Western civilization, to counter that. So the Greeks came up with democracy. You know, the Romans had a Senate uh, to counter potential Caesars that came along, and they did. And uh, our system of democracy in Canada is supposed to be about responsible government. Uh, the U.S. system was specifically designed after 1776 to say, listen, we don't want another King George here, even domestically. So we're going to create the House of Representatives versus the Senate versus the White House and have a judiciary. Um, and, and people often say the U.S. system doesn't work. Well, actually, it works the way it's intended, which is no one gets all the cards. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to because they were worried about the concentration and, and abuse of power. That's a long way of saying um, <laughs> But that is my political philosophy. And so when I analyze issues, um, it's not, well, you know, uh, a right-wing commentator says this, or a philosopher says this, or a left-wing, you know, progressive says that, uh, and I align with this side or that side. Uh, in, in my case, you know, I'm not even a centrist, because I don't think that makes sense either, ideologically. Uh, I ask, again, what's the end you're trying to get to, and are you sure that the means to that end works? Because mm -hmm. in my view, this is a problem in politics, and I see this in journalism all the time and in another commentary. Uh, So-and-so is a centrist. Well, listen, if one person says 2 plus 2 equals 4, and another person says 2 plus 2 equals 6, 
Um, does that mean the centrist should say two plus two equals five because he doesn't want to be an extreme? Um, that, that makes no sense, right? Right, yeah. Um, you have to get, in policy especially, you know, uh, what works? Um, mm -hmm. And that's a very different question than, than ideology. So um, apologies, Patrick, but a long answer to a short question. Um, classical liberal, small c conservative, um, and uh, focus on, again, policy in terms of making sure that the end, you know, if you have a certain end that you have in mind, my analysis in much of my career is, are you sure what you're proposing gets there? And sometimes it does, and sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't. But the victim cult is really beside all that. It really was the canon of inspiration, actually, uh, in part because of British Columbia, in part because of Canada, and in part because of indigenous chiefs. Mm -hmm. And growing up by Kelowna, I saw a very successful First Nation, West Bank First Nation. I don't agree with everything they've done in their history, but I think they certainly took the opportunities around them in a sun belt to make the most of what they have and have been successful as a mm -hmm. result. I've seen other First Nations chiefs and other movements within um, Native Canada that sometimes are counterproductive in my view, that play the victim card. Uh, and we've seen mm -hmm. this repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly in Canadian history. Um, I think you, I understand, uh, if I was an Aboriginal Canadian, an Indigenous Canadian, um, I would be pretty peeved that my ancestors lost the right to vote and then only gained it back in 1960. But I think there's a great danger on focusing on historical grievances mm -hmm. to, the, to the exclusion of looking forward. And so really that, the victim cult started with that inspiration, with that observation. And it's an observation that uh, the person who wrote the foreword, Ellis Ross, now running mm -hmm. for the BC Liberals, but an MLA on the coast there in British Columbia and uh, former chief at uh, the highest of First Nation, uh, chief elected counselor. Um, Ellis had the same uh, and has the same observation I do. Mm -hmm. One has to be very careful about dwelling on past grievances to the exclusion of opportunities now and in the future. Right. Yeah, forward-looking mindset instead of a past, trying to correct the past constantly in mindset. We talked about, um, you talked about Imbru Kendi and his, his case for, um, for reparations and Ta-Nehisi Coates as well, um, which are fantastic arguments. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, thank you for listening to the Hemlock Podcast. One of the ways you can support the Hemlock Podcast is by eating delicious food. Sound too good to be true? It's not. <laughs> good food is a phenomenal food slash meal subscription service that my wife and I use all the time and love. And I just wanted to share what we're eating this week and what you could be eating if you had your own good food subscription because use the link in the description uh, or on the website, hemlockpodcast.com slash episodes. Go to the most recent episode, click the link, and you get 40 bucks off your first box of good food. So this week we're having Mexican style ground beef tortilla lasagna. We're having Jamaican style chicken with Caribbean sweet potato wedges and a coca rabbit mango slaw. I don't know what that is. It sounds good. Chicken breast with thyme jus, roasted carrots, and rutabaga Brussels mash. So good. Get it in you. Have you gotten in trouble at all for, for looking at things empirically? Because even some of the things you said, like you mentioned the 2 plus 2 equals 4 and not 6, right? Uh, you've seen, and maybe it's maybe it's sensational, maybe it's not. You see articles about how some people are calling that racist to say like objective, like math is racist. You've seen that around in, in, in some academic circles even. Um, you, you quote Thomas Sowell uh, a lot throughout the book, which, as do I, he's probably the most person I most quote throughout the podcast. Um, I love his work, uh, and he's gotten in trouble by um, even from his own race, which he's obviously trying to fix problems amongst amongst his own race and, and cultures broadly, um, because those principles that he talks about, uh, and I'll let you maybe expound upon them, um, they work in all cultures and across all contexts, right, uh, for the most part. So... Um, 
yeah, have you gotten in trouble for taking an empirical approach? Um, and do you have hope that 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 approach is going to change minds and change hearts? Um, or do we have to take another tack? How do we, how do we, how do we get to a place where we can look, look at things empirically without being accused of being racist or if you're Thomas Sowell and uncle Tom or all that kind of thing, how do we deal with that problem? It's, it's an excellent question. Um, I suppose, uh, you know, maybe I've gotten into trouble, but it depends if one cares about that or, uh, you know, as opposed to telling the truth. Well said. Um, you know, I'm not a moral relativist. It's not that I think, uh, you know, uh, a mere human being like you or I can have all the answers to every question. That would presume to be, um, I mean, that would be in, in uh, you know, religious terms, blasphemy, since none mm -hmm. of us are deities. Um, but, and, and Thomas Sowell, I think, would probably, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak for him. My understanding of Thomas Sowell's approach is that he would characterize himself as paying attention to the facts, you know, which is what an empirist, empiricist should do in economics or any other field. Uh, insofar as you can, you know, grasp, get a hold of the right, the right data and uh, draw a conclusion from it and and rule out certain cause and effect claims that others make or you yourself might make in in you know in pursuit of, of the truth um, and especially this is easier in hard sciences you know obviously um, if you say to me i you know uh you know mark i can fly um you know and, and i say to you patrick you may want to pay attention to the reality of gravity um <laughs> you know the empirical truth of that will, will win out pretty quick or be obvious pretty quick um you know and that's not the same in every field right uh, when should one go to war to prevent tyranny versus, um, you know, simply hold the borders where they are? I mean, that's more of an art than a, than a perfect science. Uh, you know, it's not like gravity where the answer may be the same in every year and every conflict. Um, but anyway, back to Thomas Sowell, I think he would characterize himself probably not a, as a, a defender of his race, as you put it, or, um, you know, I think he would, again, characterize himself as an empirist who says, look, it doesn't matter whether you're white or black or you're your ethnic ancestry is from Japan or Singapore or, um, you know, the Ukraine, or Ukraine rather, mm -hmm. um, you know, what matters is, you know, to success would be an education, for example. Mm -hmm. When you saw the educational um, quality of schools in Washington, D.C., as I, as I point out in the victim cult, you know, quoting Thomas Sowell in this instance, when those schools declined, black, mainly black schools declined, you saw the decline in black store scores, uh, test scores, which previous to that had, had beat most white scores. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think uh, I would argue the same as Sewell does, that uh, there are certain realities. And if you look, for example, in the victim cult, you'll see in one of the chapters, uh, whether it's in the Canadian edition or, or the American edition, and let's start with the Canadian edition first, um, people will claim, for example, that uh, the, uh, the, the, the reason for differences in outcomes between, say, indigenous Canadians right now in statistics, the average income of an indigenous person in Canada versus a non-indigenous person, in other words, everybody else, mm -hmm. is due to racism or institutional racism. Um, I would argue that's not the case, actually. And in fact, what you have to do is you have to engage in apple-to-apple -apple comparisons. So in the victim cult, I do that. In one of the chapters where I look at uh, someone who's 25 to 34, has a university degree, works full-time, full year, indigenous, non-indigenous, their incomes are practically the same. In fact, I think there's a hundred dollar, there's about a $100 advantage to the indigenous Canadian. Now what, now right. what that shows you is people in similar circumstances, you know, similar education, uh, likely living near a city, um, you know, show me the discrimination, you know, Thomas Sowell mm -hmm. does the same thing with black Americans says, mm -hmm. show me the discrimination. It's not that personal prejudice doesn't exist. Uh, but that's not the same as institutional discrimination. And, um, so yeah, when you dive into the numbers, 
you say, okay, show me the case then for compensation in the case of black Americans from slavery. Or are you missing, again, you know, this is the, if you're trying to get to a certain end, are you sure that you've, you're, you've identified the right cause? In the case of black Americans and, and arguments around reparations for slavery, Ibram Kendi, that argument and, and from others. Well, mm -hmm. um, there, may be, um, there may be reasons closer to modern day that explain the disparity in outcomes between say white Americans and Asian Americans and, and black Americans, uh, such as the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, if, if you're an American of say Taiwanese origin, you know, that's your ethnicity or that's where your family came from or where you came from, your education levels, uh, university degree, degrees, uh, you know, those who complete university are about three, more than three times higher that than that of um, black Americans and also mm -hmm. significantly higher than white Americans. Well, what does that tell you? you're probably going to have a higher income because we know university education brings a higher income. Um, so um, people wrongly blame, say, institutional discrimination. Or again, back to Canada, Indigenous Canadians. There's a greater proportion of Indigenous Canadians that live in rural areas in Canada. And, mm -hmm. and rural Canada, Canadians also earn less. There's a reason for that. They're not mm -hmm. near a major city. They're not near educational opportunities. They're not near uh, you know, multiple career opportunities, especially the more rural you get. Plus, of course, First Nations reserves, some of them are in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. They're not, most of them are not near major centers. So if you have a good chunk of the indigenous population, or at least the First Nations population, Tweety Indians, as they used to be called, status Indians, on reserve, not a majority, but a good chunk. Mm -hmm. um, those reserves often are in the middle of nowhere. They're poor because they lack opportunity nearby and educational opportunities beyond high school. So that will depress incomes. Um, so Again, a lot of people point to factors that are not necessarily as relevant as they think or relevant at all, and that's the danger. And so whether it's Thomas Sowell or myself, yeah, I think you at least have to start with the data because if you don't start with the data or, or you do what some people do these days and try and dismiss it as, as artificially racist, uh, redefine yeah. <laughs> racism to, to say data is racist, like two plus two equals four is a racist, whatever. Um, it's bizarre. And you're yeah. kind of an Alice in Wonderland area. <laughs> you can't actually, yeah, you can't, you can't actually have a rational debate. Um, you know, and there's a danger there, by the way, because mm. what are you back to? You're back to red tooth and claw. If there's no, mm -hmm. if you can't agree in a common set of data points or facts, mm -hmm. at least as a start, then you know what you're yeah. back to power struggles, and that's it, mm -hmm. which is actually kind of what the woke progressive left is about these days. They, they, they argue, and this goes back to even Alan Bloom in the closing of the American mind in 1987, where Alan Bloom observed this. If you really think relationships are only about power, that exists, you know, mm -hmm. power struggles between, you know, a man and a wife, or, you know, between an opposition party and the government, or be, between, you know, the oppressed and tyrants, like Hitler or Stalin oppressing them. There are power struggles. But if you, if you reduce every human interaction to a power struggle mm -hmm. uh, and economics to, you know, you've you got privilege or had privilege and I don't or something, you actually miss out on all sorts of other reasons that people may act the way they do or be the way they do. Mm -hmm. And the notion that power explains everything doesn't explain why someone throws themselves in a grenade um, mm -hmm. to, to save their, their brother in arms. Mm -hmm. It doesn't explain the love of a mother who might sacrifice herself or her child. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and certainly go to all ends uh, to raise that child in the best way she knows how. Um, there's much in life that is not explained by power politics. But if you if you reduce everything to power and also obliterate data, then um, you know there is no basis for discuss discussion. There is no basis mm -hmm. for shared humanity. You're actually back to a power struggle, and these days based on identity of, of skin color or ethnicity, 
that's actually where it gets really concerning and dangerous. And this mm-hmm. is why I go into examples like Rwanda in the book or, or Germany mm-hmm. between 1800 and 1945. Yeah, no, well said. Yeah, referred to as the victim hierarchy often, oftentimes today is, is dividing people into their different identity groups and who is more, uh, who is more victimized or oppressed in today's culture. And um, yeah, as I if think- there's a scale, right? As if there's a yeah. scale. Totally. You, know, you, you may have had certain things happen to you in childhood um, you know, that someone else didn't or vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you weigh the suffering of a man who lost his limb in World War II, um, you know, compared to maybe his, his sister who lost a husband in World War II? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you equate that kind of suffering um, as mm-hmm. if there's some, you know, or again, the, the denial of indigenous rights uh, before 1916 Canada to, I don't know, um, uh, you know, the, the slavery of an indigenous person in the 1800s in British Columbia by mm-hmm. a First Nation when, you know, the Imperial British were trying to wipe out slavery. Like, you know, um, I mean, how do, you, how do you equate the suffering, mm-hmm. the various types of suffering as if there's an impartial scale in human history? Yeah. I mean, there isn't. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention to it. And the closer mm-hmm. the suffering is to modern day or yesterday, um, you know, try and make some remedy for it. I mean, if I steal your property, you have the right mm-hmm. to go to court and say, I want that back, mm-hmm. right? Um, as you should, you know, if I yeah. defraud you in some legal agreement. But um, the further you go back, the more difficult this becomes. And yet we're into Alice in Wonderland uh, mm-hmm. these days again, where people want to correct for things that happened 100 or 1,000 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, but create new victims in the present, ironically. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think I actually I wrote an article myself um, uh, as a critique of, I started reading the Communist Manifesto. Um, just so I, I've read a bunch of critiques of Marx, but I hadn't read the Communist Manifesto itself. So I wanted to just like, you always get accused of that. Have you read it? Have you ever read Marx? So I wanted to get into it. And I started writing critiques on it basically because within the first few paragraphs of that manifesto, it falls apart. One of the ways it falls apart, um, in my opinion, is it, um, it's, it's this almost childlike oversimplification of classifying everyone into oppressor and oppressed, which is that power dynamic, that power struggle you're talking about. And I was actually really validated to find that a section like that in your book where you talk about how it's just way oversimplified. It's not a realistic view of, of human history. Um, and when you view everything as oppressor versus oppressed, you do create new victims, um, especially since that's like a, a collectivist um, view versus an individual. So you hurt individuals by treating collectives um, or trying to, yeah. And it's not even a realistic view of the human heart. So I quote Alexander mm-hmm. Solzhenitsyn, as you know, in the book, the, the Soviet dissident who in the Gulag Archipelago, um, after observing other people in, in the, the camps that he was in, um, in Siberia, in the Gulag camps, um, where they were replaced by Stalin or Stalin's henchmen. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes of his experience that you would see people who thought if only that other person was exterminated, literally, in some cases, mm. Um, you know, you know, they, they look at someone else in the camps, maybe the guards, or before they all came into the camps, how they were treated by, by the communists uh, in power mm-hmm. that, well, if only we deal with you, all our problems will go away. We'll put you in the camps or exterminate you even, you know, in the worst uh, scenario, and all our problems will disappear. And he wrote a very, I thought, um, insightful line, which was to the effect of um, the dividing line between good and evil is not between uh, human beings, but it exists in every human heart. Absolutely. And, and that's that's back to the danger of power or, you know, latching onto a grievance and fastening on it uh, and blaming others for your problems, which may or may not be true, or even if it is, uh, it won't help you if, if you obsess on it or, or, or blame everything on that. But Alexander Solzhenitsyn was right. Mm-hmm. Um, and without paying attention to that dividing line, you know, you find movements that arise based on a past um, wrong. 
So Germans after 1800 were abused by the French. I mean, they, they spent you know, a decade or two or whatever it was trying to you know, remove the French from German lands uh, because the French were abusing them uh, when they ruled over them, as happens in occupations. Um, you know, in one case, I, I wrote in the victim cult the example of, of a town in, in Germany where some young 19-year-old uh, woman was raped by like 20 soldiers and thrown over a castle mm -hmm. wall and left to die in the reeds. I mean, of course yeah. that will anger you as a German, mm -hmm. um, these atrocities in war. Um, but yet when the Germans uh, finally, you know, kicked out the, the French from German lands, um, they, they focused so much on the grievance and rebuilding and they were searching for an identity. They focused so much on creating a pure German identity culturally. Um, and they were so afraid of, of ideas from elsewhere, be it the French, the English, liberals, cosmopolitans, Jews, everybody mm -hmm. was an enemy or a source of potential infection. Mm -hmm. And long before the Germans became enamored with the nonsensical race uh, purity, uh, notions of race purity, they, they were enamored with race, uh, cultural purity, which mm -hmm. we hear again today. People think their culture should be protected. Well, you might want to learn from other cultures uh, before you make that decision. Um, mm -hmm. So there is this great danger in the human heart, though, that you make mistakes because you're abused in the past. You begin a self-righteous movement. Um, and you see this again and again in human history. People mm -hmm. use the past to justify oppression uh, or some sort of you know bad policy in in the present, and it, it it can go viral and very very dangerous. You know, in modest circumstances, liberal democracies, it simply can dampen down the rights of some vis-a-vis -vis others, and people are no longer treated as individuals in job applications. Mm -hmm. That's why I hate affirmative action, so-called mm -hmm. uh, racial quotas, gender quotas. <laughs> I don't yeah. think some Hungarian immigrant's grandson now um, should pay for the tragedies or the wrong decisions of 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't try and rebalance the scales collectively in groups because that creates new victims. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's nonsensical. It's a utopian approach to trying to correct yeah. for past wrongs by discriminating against people in the present. Mm -hmm. And it largely hurts, that practice specifically largely hurts those it purports to help, right? If you look at stats on, on, on like, let's say, black dropout rates in, in American universities, um, because w when you have, when you're kind of falsely, when you're fudging the numbers, to allow more blacks to go to college, which sounds like a noble pursuit, right? Um, what happens is you can't identify that maybe the schools they're coming from um, are, have problems, and so they're not as prepared for that college as they would have been had they needed the same test scores as Asian Americans, for example, right? And so they're actually dropping out at higher rates because they're not being prepared by the schools they came from properly to to go to the universities they're actually getting into, and so they actually end up being hurt by those kind of policies because people aren't looking at the data. They're, they're doing what feels good rather than what does good um, in a lot of those cases. And this is the Thomas Sewell argument about race admissions, right? Mm -hmm. Doing that doesn't do anyone a favor because mm -hmm. you're telling people they um, that may not be qualified for Harvard, they should get into Harvard when they would have succeeded at a school that was perhaps less tough or less prestigious or whatever it is. Absolutely. Less tough in terms of the academic workload. Um, you know, I, I've got a colleague, um, you know, who uh, is helping out with the Aerosol Foundation whose, you know, ancestry is, is Chinese. Um, and he despises, you know, race and gender quotas because he doesn't want his kids to ever be seen as somehow mm -hmm. having benefited from um, an artificial um, hand up uh, when he would yeah. argue they don't need it. It's um, insulting, yeah. All in their own merit, yeah. Yeah. And so he doesn't want anybody to ever be suspicious of how they get to where they're going to go. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the victim cult. Uh, I mean, I, I do think these these dangers arise again, in, in part from good aims, you know, people see someone suffering and want to help them. Right, right. So make sure you do it the right, right way. Yeah. So in terms of racial and gender quotas, 
The mistake there is, is not in the initial sort of um, desire to help. It's in the means to the end. How you help people who um, are disadvantaged and, um, you know, I, yeah, how you do that is not by asking about their skin color or even their background. You say, okay, if you're poor and you want to get into university in Canada or college in the United States, mm -hmm. let's see how we can help you based on your income or your right. parents' income. But let's not discriminate, you know, based on race, because maybe you're the grandson of Bill Cosby or some other famous black entertainer, and you can well afford to pay the full freight. Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe again, some kid who's the great grandson of a Holocaust survivor uh, is poor. Um, that kid, you know, should get the hand up in terms of financing. Mm -hmm. So it makes much more sense to look at people as individuals than as part of some collective. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um I wanted to kind of address that actually because you talk about um, just uh, the Virginia election has been in the news a lot recently. What's up, everybody? Thanks for listening to the Hamlock Podcast. You thought this was going to be another ad, didn't you? Well, you lucky duck. Guess what? The whole episode is talking about Mark Milkey's The Victim Cult, how the culture of blame hurts everyone and wrecks civilizations. So you get to miss out on this one. That's a little shorter, but still, you should go to hamlockpodcast.com slash memberships or slash merch or slash books, I think, <laughs> and check out other uh, books you can buy from the podcast, merch you can buy from the podcast, uh, or become a member, an all-access member, because you get ad-free episodes and live hangouts and mailbag questions and a free water bottle that says based, because you're based, which means authentic, real, you have a soul, so do that. I guess this kind of did turn into... Uh, a full ad because it's almost almost a minute anyways in fact it will be in five seconds because i somehow managed to drag this out so love you the virginia election has been in the news a lot recently um kind of a hot topic um in the news cycle and one of the biggest things that was talked about in that was uh you had um, terry mcauliffe the democrat running against uh glenn youngkin the republican and one of the major issues um that was reported um, exit polling and stuff like that was critical race theory in schools, right? Um, and so critical race, th the discussion around critical race theory is really toxic. People go, oh, critical race theory is not being taught in schools. Ah, yes, it is. And it's just people butting heads online and stuff. Um, and the argument is that it's not in the curriculum, but you actually, you mentioned this in the book, you, not critical race theory specifically, but critical theory, right? It's, it's parent um, and, and Marxism, um, Marxist philosophy is as a parent to that. Um, that uh, these professors and stuff, that critical theory has existed in colleges for, for decades at this point, right? Um, centuries, if you go further back and kind of look at the upstream of that. Um, so critical race theory is this boogeyman, does exist, doesn't exist, being taught in schools, not being taught in schools. Um, is it just a boogeyman or what are your opinions on on things like critical theory and, and Marxist philosophies, the resurgence of that in academia? Well, I, I do think it's harmful. I don't think it should be banned. I think that's a mistake. And I think what you okay. want to do as a practical policy solution is allow people to say, look, you know, I mean, charter schools are good, uh, you know, diversity in schools, um, you know, and school curriculums. And if somebody wants to teach their kids that uh, they should view themselves as a oppressor or a victim based on their skin mm -hmm. color or ethnicity or what have you, I suppose they can go do that. Um, by children, I wouldn't be putting my, my kids in a school like that. Okay. Likewise, I think others should be able to say this is nonsensical. And we prefer the Martin Luther King, Alexander Solzhenitsyn approach, which is we all have good and evil in our hearts. And let's look at your character. So um, and I think what's happening in the United States and, and, you know, it's perhaps not as publicized as much in Canada. When you see instances of kids being told, um, 
you know, either explicitly or implicitly that they are a victim because of their ethnicity in a modern liberal democracy like the United States or Canada or the United Kingdom, um, that they're a victim or oppressor because of their race. Mm -hmm. um, when Ontario outlawed discrimination on the basis of race in the 1950s for employment, for accommodation, or you know, going into restaurants. Um, no, first of all, I think they're wrong in the facts. Second of all, though, it's a very dangerous thing to do because again, you know, uh, this is this is Imran Kendi's theory, but mm -hmm. all different differences in outcomes. You know, when you measure by race, right? You do the statistics. Right. You look at you, the U.S. Census. You look at you know Statistics Canada. If there's a difference in average outcomes, that any out difference in outcomes must be due to race, to racism. It's nonsensical. As I mentioned a moment ago, um, the graduation rates from university for Mexican Americans are something like 13 percent, 23 percent for Black Americans, and about three times that for Taiwanese Americans. Education kind of matters. Um, to incomes and the differentials. Um, but, um, I mean, back to the critical race theory, if you divide people in school or you give them implicitly or explicitly that notion that they're victims or oppressors based on the race, this is what the Hutus did in Rwanda post-independence in 1960. And this is the largest, this is mm. the lengthiest chapter in the victim cult, which is that, um, you know, the Rwandans for some time before 1960, this, the Hutus in Rwanda, the majority of the population, about 85%, maybe were discriminated against. There's some evidence to suggest that by the colonial governments and the Belgians and then the Germans, the Germans and the Belgians rather. Um, maybe you can make that argument. They seem to be favored. Uh, sorry, the Tutsi minority was vis-a-vis -vis the Hutu majority. Uh, there's also some evidence to suggest that part of this was a result of occupations chosen. If you're a rancher, which a lot of Tutsis were, you, you had better money, better income than you know a farmer, which was what a lot of Hutus were involved in, subsistence farming. So, you know, there may have been economic disparities because of economics, because of careers chosen, occupations chosen. Nonetheless, after the 1960s, uh, the Hutu in power began to discriminate against the Tutsis and pretty brutally um, in pogroms on occasion. But in, in the school system, the kids are taught, um, especially coming in the 1970s, and the 1980s and the early 1990s before the, um, um, before the genocide, that you as a Tutsi are um, an oppressor. Mm -hmm. And you're an occupier in our indigenous lands. This was the, this was the rhetoric from the Hutus. Um, and doesn't that sound familiar today? And mm -hmm. it's it's dangerous um, and it's wrong. And there, there are articles or there's there's comments from those who were taught together as Hutus and Tutsis as children in the 1940s, 1950s, before the Hutu uh, radicals took power, um, you know, or those who, you know, introduced a radicalized curriculum. Um, there's stories in the 1940s and 1950s in the victim cult that I tell where a Hutu child says, we used to play together. I mean, we didn't know Hutu from Tutsis. Mm -hmm. But once this race uh, doctrine was introduced into the schools in the 1960s, we were no longer, or our children were no longer, would no longer play together. Um, and teachers began to identify us, you know, um, by our looks. And supposedly you could tell the difference between a Tutsi and a, and a Hutu. Um, and this, this, frankly, I think is the state propaganda that set up uh, Rwanda to fail and set it up for genocide. And there, there was much else that went into what happened in 1993. But certainly this notion that you should teach kids that they're a beneficiary or, um, you know, or an oppressor uh, mm -hmm. because of their race is even in liberal democracies where we have all sorts of safeguards against this going murderous and viral. Even mm -hmm. in democracies, it's, it's dangerous because I don't think it's a true reflection of wouldn't that be an argument then for, for banning something like critical race theory? If you look at examples like Rwanda and that's maybe this is where that, that kind of 
situation starts? I suppose, but I, I, I generally, you know, would would favor, you know, exposing uh, ludicrous arguments, mm -hmm. which is what uh, some of this is, uh, you know, sure. some of these are rather, um, as opposed to banning them. Um, and again, giving people choices. I doubt most parents, and you see this, you know, uh, in the United States, and you know, I haven't seen the polls in Canada, but you see this, for example, mm -hmm. in relation to this notion of canceling cops, right? Mm -hmm. uh, defunding cops. 80% of black Americans think it's a ridiculous idea. Yeah. They want you know, police levels funded at the same or higher levels in the mm -hmm. United States. And I think the same thing would be true of critical race theory. I think, you know, again, it's one thing to say, listen, you, know, you should have some sense of what, say, black Americans endured in the South and even in Chicago until the 1950s and 1960s yeah. in terms of discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, but that's very different than critical race theory, which again is monocausal. The, re the reason I disagree with Ibram Kendi on his theories of race is because everything is due to race. I mean, he yeah. said this, and I quote him in the book in the U.S. edition of the Victim Cult, mm -hmm. um, that you know all these disparities are due to race. I mean, it's the most simplistic anti-empirical yeah. theory you can possibly have, and and he has to redefine racism to get there. Mm -hmm. um, that any disparity is racism. No, uh, you know, with due respect, Abram, it uh, <laughs> it can be due to bad schools. It can be due to broken up families. It can be due to geography. People in the South of any race mm -hmm. earn less than other parts of the country, for example. And if you have a majority or, or greater proportion of black Americans in the South, of course, it's going to drag down averages, et cetera, et cetera. So um, again, I, 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 would, I would hesitate to try and ban critical race theory. I think it right. plays into the, uh, you know, those who you know, think that uh, you're just doing what the cancel crowd from the left does. Totally. Yeah, that's totally fair. That's why I think uh, you look at the work of like people like Christopher Rufo, uh, his work and kind of exposing what critical race theory is to, to parents in the States is he's been doing a great job of that. Um, even it's kind of interesting with the whole COVID situation, you have kids learning from school. So you have parents that were able to like, they're listening to what their kids are being taught. And, uh, and I think that's why it was such a major factor in, in something like the Virginia election. Because, um, and actually, I want to go into... I think you're right. I think Virginia yeah. is a good result, a good example of that result. But, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Lane and uh, McAuliffe's arrogant uh, presumption that parents should have nothing to do with you know what's chosen in the education of their kids mm -hmm. uh, and so i guess maybe the good thing you know you don't yeah that was the covid virus in the past year and a half has been that parents got to see what their kids were taught mm -hmm. and they don't like it mm -hmm. yeah that's that's actually one of the thing I, the hubris of that statement was pretty astounding that parents don't have a right to, to, to influence or, or, or care what their kids are being educated in um which is actually, you know, I have a quote from from the victim called. Feel free to read that. Um, that kind of goes into uh, kind of fixing the wrongs of the past because a lot of I think uh, race baiters, I would say, like like Abram Kendi, um, they often when people like that are confronted on on the, they throw the term systemic racism or institutional racism around, um, which is fairly easy to disprove because you can't find laws like that um, in institutions in the law of the land uh, if anything things like affirmative action it goes the other way than what the what the the race baiters would say right um, so when they're confronted with okay systemic racism isn't in the laws of the land they, they automatically pivot to historical racism okay well historical racism is the re is the reason for this obviously that's true right obviously um, things that happened in the past impact things in the future. Um, you make a great case in the victim cult about um, the difference between like the Asian American community um, and, and how recent some of those abuses have been um, and how completely different um, scenarios resulted as far as like education and income um, because they took like, they took a different tack and they just head down, work hard, do our thing, get educated, right? Um, and it's a different, 
it's a different result than than some other um, cohorts that took more of a victim mindset, right? So I want to read this quote because I love this. Um, I love this section where you go. When in the 1950s, Hutu elites properly asserted that one sliver of Rwandan society did not have the right to rule over all and demanded equality. The problem was not in the demand for access or education or government jobs or the right to run for political office. If by that one meant equality of opportunity seeking, as opposed to a statistical equality imposed via politics. A demand for equality of opportunity on a go-forward basis is foundational for a liberal society where individuals are cemented at the center of law, policy, and rights. But to succeed requires a certain forgetting to not measure, count, and award education or employment by race and ethnicity, but to treat individuals as individuals, as distinct from their families and ancestors, regardless of how each individual supposedly arrived at their current state. To do anything else assumes an omniscience not given to man. It is to presume that all historical factors can be accounted for, that all of effects upon progeny measured, and that the state and its employees can correct for millions of past choices and millions of past variables. It is an arrogant assumption that asserts deity-like awareness. And I just like, I shiver at that. Like that was, that's a great, it's very well written, well written. Um, because you do see, maybe, I don't know, this is probably false. It seems that, that the hubris of politicians, uh, has been ramped up to 11 lately. <laughs> like, um, when you look at, I mean, a lot of stuff through COVID has been example where you see Anthony Fauci pivoting on a month to month basis about COVID policy. I, you shouldn't wear masks. Now you should wear masks. I never said you shouldn't wear masks. Like they're just blatantly lying month to month, um, pivoting on policy like that. It seems like, it seems like the gall of certain politicians to say things like parents have no business in their kids' education stuff like that, um, has increased. Maybe it hasn't, but how do we, how do we make the case for, um, for like you said, an individual mindset versus a collective mindset. Politicians capitalizing on pitting identity groups against each other um, and often lying through their teeth to do it. Um, how do we get back to um, to a place where uh, humility and separation of powers and federalism and your right to make your own decisions, um, how do we make that case to people who seem to be trusting politicians who are lying to them all the time more and more? Well, there's a lot there, Patrick, um, and I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't characterize I wouldn't necessarily characterize the motives uh, of the people you've just mentioned in the way that you did. Sure. And I think human beings are flawed. Yeah. And so, and without getting into COVID, I mean, I think sometimes do the best they can with the new threat. Okay. Uh, now, maybe they're, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. We'll find out more over time. But in terms of the victim culture, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, freedom versus responsibility. I mean, um, well, sorry. Let me, let me just stick straight to the victim cult and. Um, I don't know mm. that there ever was a better time in terms of, you know, political rule or, um, I mean, human beings are remarkably similar throughout history. Um, mm. You know, in, in my view is, uh, they, they, you know, we all have divided hearts, as I mentioned a moment ago, and Alexander mm. Solzhenitsyn pointed that out in his comments, in his writing, in the Gulli Archipelago. And, and so as any, uh, you know, thoughtful writer, you know, throughout history observes, you know, men and women for more than a second. So I think the problem is always in terms of, again, and this is an this is an ongoing debate, and it won't be settled today or tomorrow or in our lifetime or in anybody's lifetime. There, there's always going to be a tension, even in in democratic societies, between freedom and responsibility, mm -hmm. um, and when you should take some responsibility, and, and even the community. Again, I'm not big on collectivism, as collectivism is, has been defined in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's value to community, um, you know, and and I mean, look, any government presupposes some restrictions on some rights, right? Right. The moment a second person enters into the equation, 
um, you're going to have to compromise on something if you want to give a you know get along. Um, so, you know, and, and when you know to to have a government presupposes some restrictions. So the debates are always about what's a justifiable restriction on mm -hmm. um, on human freedom, right? And um, I think the proper place to start, though. Um, is, you know, the conception that's been with us, I don't know, since the Magna Carta or since the Boris Revolution of 1688 or, you know, the Bill of Rights mm -hmm. in the case of the United States or 1867 in, in Canada. But, you know, the, again, the classical liberal tradition at the very least since, you know, uh, you know, over the last couple of centuries that the individual matters. And what I mean by that is not that community doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that governments can't restrict rights in some cases. Mm -hmm. What it means is, is when you as an individual apply for a job or appear in court, up on some charge, you're not treated differently because you're an indigenous Canadian or a mm -hmm. non-indigenous Canadian or a black American versus a Chinese uh, American versus a white. Um, I want you to be treated as an individual. And that was the classical liberal view. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've all had some tragedies in our past or ancestors. I mean, one of the chapters in the book, The Victim Cult, I was going to title, you know, all our ancestors are bastards. <laughs> something something yeah. much more mild than that, because but I wanted to make the point that, you know, again, no one's family tree is, is free of black sheep. Mm -hmm. You know, if I can mix those two metaphors, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, nobody's ethnic lineage is free of tyrants or, or um, you know, pretty off stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, again, back to the notion, how do you measure all this stuff as if on a scale? The only thing you can do is say, OK, Patrick, you're in court today for a speeding ticket. I'm not going to treat you any differently. Or hopefully yeah. that's it. You know, I'm not going to treat you any different than, than someone else you know, male, female, whatever your, you know, ancestry is or the skin color. We're getting away from that a little bit again, based on, yes, but this person had a tough childhood or their their um, their ancestral brethren did. Um, that's really dangerous. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by treating an individual as the same in law and policy. Um, mm -hmm. There is no call to discriminate. Now, again, if you've stolen my property or you, the government, have stolen my property, as happened to Japanese Canadians and Japanese Americans, I think I deserve some recomp some compensation mm -hmm. a year, five years, maybe even 50 years later. But the longer the time goes on, the tougher the case is to make. Mm -hmm. If you're um, a slave in the United States, when the Quakers freed slaves, they also compensated them. This was like in the late 1700s. Mm -hmm. So that made sense because the Quakers benefited. You want to talk about white privilege? There was white privilege in that case. <laughs> you know, um, plantation owners in the 1860s. And before, of course, they had white privilege vis-a-vis -vis their black slaves. Mm -hmm. And of course, there should have been compensation at the end of the Civil War. Um, but 150 years later, there's so much that has kind of, you know, occurred since then, where again, I would argue someone's status today is mm -hmm. a black American, um, you know, or I don't know, a Palestinian in the West Bank has a lot more to do with what's happened in the last five years or 50 years than say 100 years ago or 150 years ago. And I think this is especially true of, again, debates over indigenous ancestry in Canada mm -hmm. or um, slavery in the United States. But I think you have to look to more modern day causes. But certainly, again, that's how you treat people as individuals is uh, by saying the government stole something for you from you and we're going to give it back. Now, indigenous you know, issues in Canada are a whole other ball of wax because there has been a substantial amount of compensation over the years. I've written plenty of studies on this or several studies on this notion. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, on the victim cult, um, the danger is, um, again, going away from awarding privileges or compensation based on ethnicity as opposed to specific of circumstances that are more recent. Right. Uh, I think I think doing the former really gets uh, 
it, it gets us into a thicket of competing victim claims from groups. Yeah, because no one has the godlike competence or wherewithal to do that to do that well and justly. Yeah. And fairly, yeah, it's a godlike. Not the farther you go back, yeah. yeah. Yesterday, yeah. maybe you know, a judge can right. sort it out. You know, tomorrow we hope, but not going back much farther than you know, five years, ten years, fifty years. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you about. So you talk about um, uh, how a lot of people, the identity politics types, uh, view the economy as a zero sum game. Right, um, that the economy is a fixed pie, and if I have more of the pie than you do, it's because I stole it from you. That kind of thing. So, um, can you explain a little bit what, more about what that means? The economy being a zero sum game or a fixed pie. Explain what that means, um, and then and then talk about how if that's not the case, and your argument against the identity politics types. Sure. Let's talk about it in the case of um, you know debates over. Um, should there be compensation now to Indigenous Canadians? I would argue there has been a significant amount of spending on Indigenous Canadians. I would, I would think it's quite clear. You can see that in the data. I once produced a report for the Fraser Institute showing the dramatic growth um, in spending on First Nations people in Canada. Um, again, those who used to be called Treaty Indians in particular, um, you know, who had treaty rights and on reserve or off reserve, uh, but also other benefits. Um, so I would argue that, you know, uh, but there is a narrative these days that, again, I think falsely attributes the, um, the status, the economic status of some Indigenous Canadians, not all, some Indigenous Canadians um, to what happened 50 or 100 years ago, where, again, I would argue, as I, I mentioned a moment ago, it has a lot more to do with geography, where you're located in the country, whether you've got an education or not. And when you make the apple-to-apple -apple comparisons, mm -hmm. um, you do find people have pretty much the same incomes. Um, but the flaw in the argument is that uh, some some who argue every sort of disparity between, again, the averages between Indigenous Canadians and others is due to institutional racism or the fact that land was stolen. Well, that ignores um, treaties across most of the country, with the exception of British Columbia and the South. It ignores how even in British Columbia, um, you know, First Nations are treated as if they had a treaty in many instances, but perhaps not all. Mm -hmm. um, but it also misunderstands how economies grow. I mean, the British Empire was not like the Spanish Empire. It was not like the Portuguese, um, or, or the, let's go with the Spanish in particular. Yes, the Spanish, you know, raided some, um, you know, Inca vaults of gold, uh, you know, in Mexico, modern-day Mexico. Um, but for the most part, you don't see, you know, you don't see uh, the Brits, um, you know, the colonial powers in, in North America mm -hmm. until they you know, moved out the French um, in, in the United States and Canada, um, you don't see the British, you know, becoming wealthy or uh, Canada becoming wealthy because of stolen property. Uh, I mean, there were treaties, but also uh, it misunderstands that the argument uh, that this was the case misunderstands how wealth is created. Mm -hmm. Wealth is created um, by labor. It is, um, you know, uh, it is created by, um, if you have property, certainly, you know, uh, cultivating the land and the farms um, that are on it. Um, uh, but, you know, you can't, you can't argue from, I mean, this is, sorry, this goes back to uh, John Stuart Mill, right? Mm -hmm. um, the land itself is, is not terribly valuable, right? You've got to do something with it. Yeah. Um, and, and when you have land that's not really used, for example, for farms before it's enclosed, whether it's in Great Britain, um, you know, and in Scotland, you know, in particular, because they had the same debates we did, you know, when the Scots were, a lot of people were chased off, you know, Scottish land and into the cities and, in, and, and the farms were enclosed. Um, and that's where they could develop the land uh, to make money off of it. The same here, 
I mean, that's where the money was created in the, you know, in the cultivation of the land. Um, you know, if you've got a fruit tree in the middle of nowhere and everyone picks off, but no one's making money, you can grab an apple. But if you enclose land and plant, you know, 20 fruit trees, 20 apple trees, mm -hmm. then the owner of that land, yes, makes, makes money. But that's how economies grow. And whether it's indigenous Canadians who came across the Varian Strait 20,000 years ago, yes, they did, they began a nascent economy. They developed a nascent, nascent economy. Um, but everyone has that's come to Canada. Maybe that's the best way to explain it. There have been waves of immigrants since the first you know people came across the Varian Strait 20,000 years ago, who we now call indigenous mm -hmm. or their ancestors. <laughs> yeah. um, and yeah. every immigrant ever since, whether from mm -hmm. Great Britain or the Congo or Mexico, or the Philippines has contributed to the growth of the Canadian economy. Mm -hmm. um, and not through stealing other people's property for the most part. And I, I would argue again, I mean, the treaties were not, you know, the property was not stolen, there were agreements. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, uh, the early settlers in Canada, the French and the English contributed to the growth of the country, which also mm -hmm. benefited indigenous Canadians. Now the sin or the, the great tragedy of of, of, of the, um, of the, um, you know, uh, of Indigenous Canada, uh, you know, meeting up with the French and the British was that the French and the British simply had superior military technology. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, societies that have it often think they're morally superior. No, they weren't. But they had they had superior military technology and, and defeated Indigenous Canadians. And then mm -hmm. Indigenous Canadians were, you know, um, the, the added to the insult of military defeat in many cases was, of course, the, you know, the creation of native reserves across the country, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes at the request of some First Nations leaders in the 1800s in Ontario, in some cases not. Uh, but this, of course, put people into a situation where they really couldn't flourish in the, in, in the Canadian economy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that was the that that discrimination was the tragedy. And that's what prevented economic participation, and economic growth. Mm -hmm. But I would argue it wasn't it wasn't the development of, of the landed economy, the agricultural economy, much of the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, well said, well said. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, as a, a very well-educated man, you have your PhD, is there any hope for universities? Because um, you see a lot of these really bad ideas, uh, incredibly prolific in, in modern universities. Um, what, what the hell do we do about universities? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm probably not the best to ask. I mean, um, I think my interests are too eclectic to have ever been a, a decent university professor, though I, I enjoyed teaching students when I was uh, completing my PhD. Mm. Um, you know, and, and it probably helps to be, I think, um, well, you know, so I haven't given, you know, a lot of thought to university reform, yeah. other than I think, you know, competition is better than not. Right. I think, it, for example, it was a tragedy that the Law Society of British Columbia did not give Trinity Western University, mm -hmm. uh, did not approve their law school application based on the fact that Trinity was a conservative right. Christian college or university. Mm -hmm. I think they should have. I think yeah. you need all sorts of views out there um, just in case, you know, we haven't arrived at the pinnacle of truth, a, you know, mm -hmm. as the Law Society of British Columbia or Mark Milkey or Patrick Jolliker, because all of us, again, are learning and, um, and we're going to have some wrong views and others need to challenge that. And I think you need universities. So mm -hmm. uh, is there hope for universities? Well, I hope so. But and I also think, you know, maybe their focus on publishing is crazy. Um, I mean, I, I met mm. some great uh, professors in university or you know, mm. lecturers that never became professors because, you know, the game is you have to publish. And I mm. think there's a lot of junk that's published in universities. Mm. I had a University of uh, Alberta law professor, sorry, not law professor, um, political science professor, Leon Craig, who thought like 80% of what was published in the social sciences was was dreg, um, dreck rather, and, and could, you know, could be thrown away without anybody noticing. It's mm. probably increased since then. Um, and so there's this, 
this push to publish. Why don't we have professors that really want to research and publish and, you know, um, let them do that. And if they want to teach, great. If they don't, they can just research for the rest of their mm -hmm. lives because maybe they're data nerds and that's fine. Let them do that. Or, you know, in the humanities, they want to do other kinds of research, you know, and, uh, and there's some great lecturers who don't want to research. Let them lecture, mm -hmm. right. you know, um, let them do that and, you know, treat mm -hmm. them equally. I think that might help universities. I mean, that's a thought off the top of my head. Yeah. But I think the deeper problem goes back to what Alan Bloom wrote about in The Closing of the American Mind uh, over three decades ago now. Hmm. But it was infected again by this notion that everything's about power, uh, which, you know, as a classicist, I mean, he was a gay man who, you know, could have, um, you know, seen the historic discrimination against gay men as, as a reason for his state status or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the kind of mindset he had. It's not the kind of mind he had. Instead, he was horrified by this notion of power politics and, and uh, settling scores between generations. Mm. Um, and uh, it's a good question, Patrick, but I don't, I don't have a great answer for you because I think there's, there, it's probably multifaceted. But I would, I would start with, yeah. you know, hope, hopefully the green shoots of new universities yeah. um, could, could, uh, could arise, especially in Canada. I think there's some of that mm -hmm. in the United States. I just read about a new university being established in uh, Texas. Maybe it was an Austin. UATX. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then also, you know, I mean, there's Hillsdale College, which is famous for, you know, being, uh, you know, thoughtful and a, and a challenge to the status quo. But um, mm -hmm. so again, maybe competition in the world of ideas is, is what will help universities reform, and maybe yeah. some funding arrangements that can change. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, yeah, I had the thought, I know it's not totally related to victim cult, but I guess it is in the sense, cause you have a, you have a chapter that's very critical of college students. Um, and so, yeah, I think you see a lot of those, a lot of those ideas and ideas that seem to, you, you would think the death toll of the 20th century would have been enough to debunk things like critical theory and Marxist theory and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah. But bad so, bad ideas have a long shelf life, right? And yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, uh, you know, if you're 20 years old, you enter university, you, you, you know, you read about some historic injustices, you may mm -hmm. make the wrong, you know, cause and effect link to today. Like unless you read Thomas Sowell, you may think, well, yeah, you know, a black kid in Washington, D.C. is disadvantaged because of racism or slavery. Whereas, you know, as we've talked about, Sowell points out, no, because they, you know, they've got crappy schools in Washington, D.C., you know, mm -hmm. black majority schools. And he will blame the, the pedagogy, the, the curriculum or, the, you know, the mm -hmm. teaching methods. Um, so unless you come into contact with that, you know, you become self-righteous as a university student. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's a mm. lot there. Um, yeah, to go over. Don't forget to ask him about Donald Trump, though. Uh, you know. That's right. Yeah, I was just about to, actually. I'm glad you brought it up. Cause, <laughs> so, okay, this is maybe the 1% maybe the of your book that I disagree with. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the last ad you have to listen to this episode. But I have to ask... Why are you still listening to ads when you could be enjoying the sweet, sweet freedom of ad-free episodes simply by signing up for a membership at hemlockpodcast.com slash memberships? Because your time is better spent, I don't know, doing things like reading The Victim Cult by Mark Milkey. Thevictimcult.com, hemlockpodcast.com slash books. Either one of those links will lead you to a place where you can purchase The Victim Cult. You could be reading that rather than listening to me do an ad read but that's just the way life is right um my wife has to eat food and i do that by doing ad reads <laughs> so <laughs> go to one of those links they're in the description read the victim cult by mark milky it's a phenomenal book it's a great read it's a ton of knowledge i love you
So okay, this is maybe the, maybe the one percent of your book that I disagree with, um, which is totally that's totally fine. I love we talk a lot on the phone and stuff, and and uh, one of the things I love about our conversations is we can disagree and we have great discussions where a lot of people just get into toxic nonsense. So I'm, I'm looking forward to looking forward to this part. Um, so um, because I think and I think too I want to address this for for listeners as well because. Um, you front load the book with a very brutal critique of, of Donald Trump. And I feel like I hope that doesn't turn people off who would agree with and laud like the 98% of the book after. Right. Um, and so I, I do want to say like if you if you're a stout Trump supporter or whatever, you're, you're um, you identify with with him or maybe I don't know, maybe a lot of people have mixed feelings about him. They like a lot of what he did and like don't like a lot of what a lot of what else he did. I feel that way myself. Um, read the whole book because the victim cult has so much great things to say so many great things to say um despite how you feel about trump because i feel like that might turn people off and that's it's you wrote it and defended it well um but a couple quick things is so you basically classified and and correct me if i'm mischaracterizing this but you classified his um his campaign is very uh as having a victim mindset he was constantly and that's that's to a certain extent i agree with that um he was constantly whinging about um about the media and about yada yada blah 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 they're so unfair to me that kind of thing right um and he would turn things on himself and you mentioned those examples in the book i agree to that to a large extent a lot of that is true um something interesting about trump though is i disagree with certain attacks you made like you um you talk about the way he talked about mexicans or the disabled um stuff like that and I, I feel like I'm, I may know the instances you're talking of, right? So this disabled one was where he made a little hand motion like this, which I've seen a compilation since that, that that's the way he mocks everybody. And so it's just, there's certain things like that where there were a lot of things in the media that were unfair, that were false about him, right? I'm not to try to defend Donald Trump, um, but whether you're talking about Russian collusion or as recently as the Virginia election, the very fine people on both sides lie, Right. Um, that was perpetuated up until the Virginia election, what was that, a month ago? Um, where he gets accused of um, saying they were during the Charlottesville protest with the white, the polo shirt, tiki torch, white, actual white supremacists, right? Um, he was accused of saying they're very fine people on both sides, meaning I think white supremacists and neo-Nazis are fine people. What he was actually saying um, was that there are people there that are saying, hey, we shouldn't tear statues down. Those are fine people. And then there was fine people going, hey, uh, we should tear the statue down because um, Robert E. Lee was a racist and a slave owner or whatever. Um, and, and then there was Antifa and then there was actual neo-Nazis and stuff. But he goes on in the next sentence to say, and I'm not very fine people on both sides. And I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis or the white supremacists. I condemn them utterly. That's a, almost a direct quote of what he said. Yeah. Those latter examples are not yeah. some of the earlier ones. Sure. Treatment in 2016. Totally. Are. Yeah. No, sorry. I'm not trying to say that you said those for sure. Um, but I'm, I just say that for the context of when he complains about unfair media treatment, um, there are some major examples. The Russia collusion thing was like three years, right? And so there are, but, but, was uh, that a fair critique? Was that a fair thing for him to, to, to plead victimhood to uh, when a lot of that stuff is true? Out in retrospect, no, because okay. uh, you know, uh, in that case, it, it, the claim turned out to have been wrong. But uh, I would say this. Um, the reason sorry, which, which claim call, ended up being wrong? Sorry. Um, Which, the, the the claim that uh, you know the, the Trump campaign team in 2016 included with the Russians, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. But I, I don't think that actually that quote is even my book. I, you know, if it is, correct me. But um, no, for I, sure. I talk yeah. about his 2015, 2016 campaign though. Mm. What struck me, and remember that I'm writing a book um, about mild, moderate, and murderous victim cults, right? And so I put Donald Trump claims, yeah. Trump, Donald Trump's claims of 2015 and 2016, and then also in 2020 after he, he lost the election. 
in the mild category. Uh, the reason sure. I did that, though, I don't think we can examine the culture of victimhood, right? This notion I'm a victim, um, mm -hmm. and a certain whining that goes along with that, or grievance culture, um, without uh, looking at you know the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think uh, my book would have had any credibility had I simply picked on American college students, which is almost a cliche, right? Uh, I don't think the chapter, my chapter on American college students at Yale and UCLA is a cliche, but I think it could be right. interpreted that way if one doesn't take the time to read it. Uh, or if I didn't talk about um, how terrorists even make victim claims, right? But on the mild mm -hmm. side, um, you know, and, and college students are somewhere between the, you know, the mild and moderate claims. In other words, you know, not as damaging to more damaging to severely damaging in the terms of murderous victim calls. Donald Trump is on the mild side for his right. victim claims. But I mean, this is a man who gained notoriety in his career deliberately through the media. Um, mm. and, and more to the point, look, every politician um, ha is going to be unfairly treated by some in the media. I would argue it's probably true that uh, the media in the United States and Canada generally swings left, you know, more interventionist, um, you know, more woke to use a modern term. Mm -hmm. I think that's true in Canada. Barry Cooper, uh, Lydia Miljan did a study for the Fraser Institute 20 years ago showing that was true in Canada. I suspect this is true as ever and more. Mm -hmm. And so conservative politicians, and I'm not sure Donald Trump was that, I think he's more of a populist, but if you want to mm -hmm. call him a conservative politician, uh, are more subject to media criticism, that's probably unfair or inaccurate, fair enough. Mm -hmm. um, nonetheless, so what? The, the point of the entire point of the victim cult <laughs> of writing it was to say, okay, maybe you're fairly unfairly, maybe you're a victim, or maybe you're not. Right. But whether mm -hmm. true or untrue, what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. um, and in the case of Donald Trump, it it uh, it was a little incredulous to me that uh, you know a man who had no problem. I mean, you can argue about you know whether his example, the Mexican judge or, or the handicapped person, was accurate. Mm -hmm. um, I do think there's a certain Tony brought to the presidency, which I thought was unfortunate, right. and a certain uh, approach that he brought to his campaign, which I thought was below him and below the office. Mm -hmm. um, it, but he certainly made the claim to be unfairly treated to be a victim. Megyn Kelly, the 2015 or 2016 right. debates, um, you know, he was really um, rude uh, in a way that I thought was unbecoming, sure. a modern presidential candidate. And he was so unlike in, in all the instances I cite in the victim cult. Donald Trump was so unlike former presidents with perhaps one exception. Richard Nixon in 1962 loses the California gubernatorial election. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, gives a bit of a whine in front of the press saying, you know, you want a Richard Nixon to, to kick around anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's famous, you know, people who hate Richard Nixon will bring that up time and again or write about his, his, his uh, you know, complaint there. Uh, and it was probably true. He probably was treated unfairly by the media. What mm -hmm. they forget though is Richard Nixon's, Nixon's next, you know, comment in that famous press conference where he says to the assembled press, yet I'm not going to cancel my newspaper subscriptions. Yeah. I never have, I never will, I respect the job you do, even I disagree with mm -hmm. you. Um, and so even Richard Nixon backs off this kind of, you know, whine. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, with the exception of maybe that example from Richard Nixon, which even is a mild one, Donald Trump is unlike any other American president, as far as right. I can tell, yeah. right? He's not uh, Harry Truman saying the buck stops here. Um, he's not mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan pointing to the shining city on a hill. Um, and perhaps that's another reason right. I put uh, Donald Trump in the Well, I put Donald Trump in the book because mm -hmm. I do think he claims to be victim. And in many cases, he's right. not. And even when he mm -hmm. is, uh, I think he took the wrong approach. And I think, think about the, I believe in the power of examples. Mm -hmm. And I think if you've made it to that level, you should first of all have some gratitude to the American public that got you there. 
uh, and even to those who didn't vote for you. And mm -hmm. you should be very careful um, not to claim to be a victim. Uh, I just don't feel sorry for a self-proclaimed millionaire from Manhattan and who made it to the president. <laughs> I mean, he made right. it farther than any of us will. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, almost flippantly, I want to say, suck it up. And, um, <laughs> right. And set the example. And this is the important thing. Sure. How do you then criticize American college students or the woke left or mm. those who come before you and say, you know, we're going to we're going to compensate X group because of what happened in the past 50 or 150 years ago. Um, and how do you how do you combat that? If you're down in the muck with them, and we're, yeah, we're all victims, you know. And, right. and he and he made some pretty outrageous claims, right? That, mm -hmm. you know, his treatment was as bad as that of Black Americans. Really? Okay. Right. Uh, look again. I think some of the claims from BLM as a right in, mm -hmm. in the victim cult are exact. No, see, I watched. See that that's maybe an example of where I disagree with you is I watched that clip, right? Um, and. And one of the things I don't think you can care, I don't think that's a fair characterization to say he was comparing that. I think he was going to say that like, um, I've been treated unfairly to this certain extent as well. And that what I've experienced to that extent gives me an empathy for how black Americans might feel. I think he was just saying that like, we all go through things that are, that are somewhat similar, obviously not to extent. It's not to the same degree, obviously, but I don't think that he was saying that in that in that clip. He's like, look, people get treated unfairly and I can I kind of identify with time that from- himself. Yeah, I think time sorry. himself to their uh, experience was 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 a mistake. And again, I think it showed right. he thought of himself as more of a victim than he should have. Uh, and again, I don't think he, he could set the example in that instance. Uh, and so look, I, I just think Donald, sure. set, Donald Trump set, uh, uh, you know, an unfortunate example. I mean, we will we will, you know, disagree on this. But I, and as you mentioned at the beginning, right. this, part of the book obviously disagree with me on, but I don't think the victim cult would have had any credibility. Had I not shown where, Vic, where Donald right. Trump himself claimed to be a victim, plus you know more yeah. generally, I don't expect you or any other reader to to agree with not you know 100% of the book. Uh, right. As an old <laughs> teacher of mine used to say, you know, if we both agree in everything, one of us isn't necessary. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Totally. And I think I think too what I do very much agree with is is the broader point you were making. I agree. Obviously, I disagree with some of the specific examples you gave, um, but the broader point you made was that if. If our culture was not already a victimhood mindset culture, his that that tap would not have worked, right? Um, and that I think that is reflective of a larger problem. I think so. As far as um, maybe the reason I disagree with you is because I think his his attacks on on whining about the media, uh, I think I think gave people awareness of the real problem. I think dishonesty in media is a huge problem, maybe one of the biggest problems in Western democracies. Um, and so him complaining about how people are lying about him all the time had some utility, I think, in waking people up to that. Um, whereas the other well, side has, sorry? I think every president does that to some degree, okay. though, uh, although not to the degree he did. I mean, George Bush Sr. famously uh, took on Dan Rather in an interview in the early 1990s when he was running for president, or the president, I think he was running for the president. Um, actually, sorry, so maybe it was before 1988, um, where, you know, George H. Bush took on Dan Rather, because uh, Dan Rather kept mentioning Iran-Contra, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, Bush's whatever non-involvement or non, you know, unwillingness to speak up on it while he was under Ronald Reagan. And, um, you know, George Bush, you know, did what, what I think you should do, push back if you think you're getting, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a wrong you know, um, a ridiculous question or ridiculous angle from a journalist. Mm -hmm. And uh, George Bush Sr. pushed back and said, look, Dan, um, you know, and there was an incident a couple weeks or a couple months before where Dan Rather had walked off the news, you know, as it was, you know, in session, or, you know, on camera. And and George Bush pushes back and said, look, how would you like it if I judged your career by the 10 seconds you were off the air 
you know, in New York City a couple of weeks ago, whatever it happened to be. <laughs> and so I think that's what you do. Look, all of us are going to be unfairly treated at times. Right. So, you know, you push back. But I, again, I, I sensed in Trump, as I do in the other examples in the book, what I call the mild examples, you know, or the mm -hmm. moderate examples. Uh, we're not talking murderous victim cults. We're talking, you know, a bit of a whine from Donald Trump and some American college students at Yale and UCLA and elsewhere in the victim cult. I think right. um, if you actually are unfairly treated, then you should do something about it. And and this is where the mm -hmm. book ends, as you know, uh, for the most part. Yeah. Uh, you know, two chapters on Asian Americans, and then your great grandparents and my grandparents. Yeah. Um, Which I really appreciate all the history on that. Examples yeah. of Asian Americans didn't, you know, Chinese Americans who arrived, Chinese immigrants who arrived in 1850 and beyond, and Japanese immigrants later, and Korean immigrants, they didn't accept the awful treatment that was dished out to them by white Californians and other Americans. Mm -hmm. Where they could, they pushed back in court. They went to court as San Francisco merchants to say, you're trying right. to discriminate against us with a bylaw that mm -hmm. basically targets Chinese laundries. You know, mm -hmm. and the court agreed with, um, you know, the complaint. Um, and same thing in Chicago and same thing in New York City. There are these examples where early Asian Americans push back, mm -hmm. and rightly so. And, um, and then they educate their kids, um, you know, and graduation rates for Chinese and Japanese Americans or those of bad ancestry, mm -hmm. you know, soars above white Americans as of 1920, 1930. And it's incredibly encouraging because this is the most discriminatory period in American history. So I give some examples in the last part of the book of where, yes, people are victimized because nowhere in the victim cult um, mm -hmm. Do I do I kind of downplay actual victimization right. or say yeah. just get over it? I don't think that yeah. tone is anywhere in the victim cult. Right. Um, deliberately, I don't want to downplay tragedy mm -hmm. in history or harms to others that are you know deliberate or even yeah. accidental harms. Totally. So, uh, but there, you know, what you do is you push back, mm -hmm. um, and hopefully in a in a tough and a constructive way, and you keep keep pushing back mm -hmm. until you reach your individual rights, which you know I think has been accomplished yeah. in the United States and Canada, which is why again I think modern victim cults are often so ridiculous. Because you're talking about a liberal democracy. You're not sitting in Saudi Arabia as an oppressed woman. You're not in Venezuela with um, you know, a corrupt gangster demagogic demagogic government. You're not a you're not a journalist in, in uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia. Mm -hmm. um, you're not a Muslim in um, you know in, in uh, the south of China. Um, mm -hmm. so for students or Donald Trump or anyone um, in modern America or modern Canada to complain about their treatment or to claim to be a victim. Um, in some exalted, grandiose sense, um, mm -hmm. I think actually shows a lack of appreciation for history. And in fact, all of our ancestors, right. all of whom had a much tougher time than we did, mm -hmm. uh, almost anyone. Again, I guess you come from one of these tragic societies around the world today as a recent immigrant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, fair enough. Do you think do you think we're starting to head that way? Because I, yeah, I just heard of a, a, an FBI raid on, on um, James O'Keefe of Project Veritas. Um, cause you hear stories like that and that, that seems frigid to me like that, that, that kind of stuff. Obviously I don't think we're anywhere near that oh, again, right now. Well, real victimization but, occurs. Yeah. And so yeah. real government overstretch occurs. And, you know, um, again, mm -hmm. there, there will be debate about what the proper measures in COVID. There will be debate about what the FBI should do. I'm, I, I think I know the organization you just mentioned. I haven't, uh, mm -hmm. I haven't seen the headline on that recently though. Um, look, the, governments yeah. by nature can overreach. Mm -hmm. So it's always a, a balance. Uh, well, balance is the right way to, this is more of an art. Governing is more of an art than a science. Um, look, I think mm -hmm. during World War II, Winston Churchill, you know, um, put um, um, Oswald Mosley in jail for, I don't know if it was a couple of months or more than a couple of months, mm -hmm. but he put this fascist sympathizer, Adolf Hitler sympathizer, Nazi sympathizer in jail because, mm -hmm. especially at the beginning of the war and under Churchill's early tenure, 
uh, Mosley was a dangerous influence and perhaps could have tipped the balance or been treasonous. Mm. So even Winston Churchill, um, right. you know, who famously stood up for rights for, you know, uh, British Jews and others. The original anti-fascist, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was willing to yeah. infringe on human freedom. Mm-hmm. In the case of Oswald Mosley. Now, he didn't do it forever. At one point, he said, listen, mm-hmm. we're fighting to protect some of these freedoms. We're going to let Mosley out of jail at some point. Now, I, I, you know, I'm going from memory. I don't remember how long Mosley was put in jail for. Mm-hmm. And there were suspensions of your normal civil rights in Britain during the war. Um, because it would be naive to think yeah. um, that, uh, you know, people go on about their ordinary life and you could have a few treasonous person, persons in the British population who wouldn't somehow find out where, you know, re- you were preparing your military maneuvers, say, for D-Day. So there are restrictions that are justifiable. Where you get into the debates, understandably, is when and where those should be and where they should not be. You know, yeah. and that's those are the kind of debates having, you know, we're having today. And um, I'm the last person that would try and give a simplistic answer in the moment. I mean, but I think that, right. I, th- I think the basic impulse in Western liberal democracies that the individual should be um, mm-hmm. should be as as free as possible most times. I think that's the right impulse. Where mm. we're all going to end up disagreeing is on the specifics sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think what you do a fantastic job in the book of is like by recounting so many different examples, um, is you basically you, you go through a lot of the red flags of when these victim cults start to form, right? And maybe that's maybe that's my inclination to defend Donald Trump is because I feel like the side that's in power now, now right? Um, the the <laughs> I want to say let's go Brandon, but that might be a little crass for an interview like this. Um, <laughs> but the Biden administration, for example, uh, perpetuates a victim cult in I think a much worse way than Donald Trump, who might have been an example of, of pleading victimhood. But the the Biden administration uh, or the Trudeau administration has this perpetuation of you are all victims. Let daddy get let daddy government look after you and let's give you a bunch of money and like and by that they consolidate power, which is the problem you're talking about earlier. Is consolidating yeah, well, power. Well, you're right. Again, this is this is the problem. This is such a narrative today, and it's so common, so politicians mm-hmm. cater to it. So Justin Trudeau is a good example, where during the election, a journalist asked a tough question of Justin Trudeau and the other candidates, um, you know, the other party leaders, rather, um, and mentioned Quebec corruption. And while it's sort of Quebec, you know, repression of rights in Quebec, right? Uh, you know, the, the law against religious symbols at work, um, that was clearly aimed at Muslim Quebecers, right? And... Um, and Quebec has a long history of intolerance, starting with Jehovah's Witnesses in the 1940s and 1950s, which John Diefenbaker fought uh, before he was prime minister as a civil rights lawyer. Um, you see Quebec picking on English Quebecois ever since the 1970s, and again more recently with ramped up policies and legislation. Um, when a journalist asks about this, you know, uh, almost all of the federal party leaders rush to Quebec's defense as, as if hmm. Quebec nationalists who are intolerant are somehow victims, and they're not. Um, but certainly, uh, the prime minister was catering to that notion of victimization in Quebec, where I think, well, no, sorry, um, you're the bullies as uh, <laughs> as Quebec nationalists and sovereigntists and separatists, um, and I really don't care that uh, you as Quebec, you know, French-speaking Quebec, for those, and being Pacific, not all think this way, for those who uh, want to claim to be a victim, uh, that there was some, you know, discrimination from English Quebec, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. The fact is you've got the power now and you're using it in the same way, which is discriminate, to discriminate against other Quebecois, other Canadians. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Justin Trudeau and the rest of them um, pretty much collapsed on this one as if some horrific insult had been given to Quebec and that Quebec was victimized by a nasty English Canada by this one question from a journalist. So that's a good example. I agree with you. It's a good example of where this narrative is, is pretty deep. Um, 
And it's pretty destructive because in, in, in the province of Quebec, you know, I mean, progressives should be all over. Um, the woke uh, crowd in our country should be all over and critical of the discrimina mm -hmm. discrimination against individuals in Quebec. But they justify it on tribal grounds or that Quebec was a victim 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, this weird illogic um, is used to justify victim narratives as opposed to saying, um, again, um, with respect, suck it up. You know, yeah. regardless of what happened 50 years ago now, treat individuals as individuals in law and policy. And you're not doing that as sovereignists in Quebec. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, excellent. Excellent. Uncle Mark. Sorry, Mark. Just Mark. I forgot. <laughs> um, super appreciate you coming and talking about obviously really enjoyed the book. Um, as a final question to you, as a parting question, um, I think one of the most important things we can do is is to look in the mirror um, as individuals, because I think all this stuff, like you said, evil is in the human heart. So uh, what would you say to to Americans, to Canadians, to, to everyone um, about finding and extracting victim impulses in ourselves? How do we do that um, introspectively first? And how do you think that translates into a broader society? I would say read history. Obviously, I'm biased. Read the victim cult, but uh, read history. Absolutely. And also, um, try and remember that most people, most of human history, had it much tougher than ourselves. Um, you know, and and understand that. And that's why I ended the victim cult with the example of your grandparents and uh, great grandparents and my grandparents. You know, um, Lydia, my grandmother, mm -hmm. your great grandmother, who, from all intents and purposes, as I can see, as I can tell seemed to have had a pretty rough early life where she uh, was three years old when they went from, you know, Ukraine as Germans hoping to come to Canada, didn't make it, were sent back to Ukraine, then, you know, ended up in Siberia on a farm, didn't, you know, and then were shipped from there back to Central Europe, you know, suffered through the First World War, lost two of her sisters. So mm -hmm. your great-grandmother and my grandmother suffered through, what, 14 years of civil war, and was a child refugee, and finally made it to Canada in 1927. And I end the victim cult, as you know, with a look at uh, how your great grandmother was um, able to, to, to look beyond that and live beyond it. She, I, I remember one time when I was a kid, Patrick, she uh, signed a document with an X because she'd never learned mm -hmm. how to read. She never had the opportunity being shipped mm -hmm. around Central Europe and Siberia for her early life, for much of her teenage years wow. and working on farms. Um, and then came to Canada and married your great grandfather. Uh, nonetheless, they carved out a good life in Canada. And I guess the point was, you know something, the choices they made in the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, um, our, your great-grandparents, my grandparents, had, had land in Kelowna. Had they kept that, I guess we all would have been, you know, rich and sipping wine in an Italian villa or, you know, on a lakeshore cottage on the <laughs> you know. But our grandparents, my grandparents, or great-grandparents made a choice, you know, to, to build a house now and then and sell it in what used to be a blue-collar town in Kelowna in the middle of the century, the last century. That's how he made his money. Um, and their choices, you know, to farm or not to farm, to come to Kelowna, especially by, you know, by the time you're, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. that determines much of your life, at least in a liberal democratic society, not a totalitarian state where you could be captured in prison forever. I get it. Then mm -hmm. you're a victim. <laughs> then you're a victim of others' choices. You really are. But in a democracy, a mostly liberal democracy, for anyone to claim themselves as a victim, no, mm -hmm. your great-grandparents, my grandparents, their choices by their 40s and 50s and 60s really determine the course of their life more than anything else, and mm -hmm. their children, and their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren. That their, their choices would have a much greater effect on you, on me, than anything that happened in 
1919 Siberia mm -hmm. or 1926 Central Europe or even in Edmonton during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I ended the book with that. It was a hopeful look at the choices they made and, and uh, my grandparents being able to enjoy their rhubarbs and their roses and mm -hmm. uh, bringing the best from the old world and, and uh, you know, the probably the, the fruits and the vegetables and, the, and, and even the roses maybe that my grandmother early mm -hmm. in life somehow uh, saw in, in the German communities where she was and the attention to detail that uh, produced some beautiful red roses that you probably wouldn't remember and they were gone mm -hmm. by the time you were a child, but I certainly remember mm -hmm. from my grandparents. Um, and they didn't live like victims, my grandparents. Yeah. And so that's why I ended the book with that. Yeah, no, I love it. Absolutely love it. Obviously, I love the personal history there as well. Um, yeah, it's it's so interesting how, uh, especially because you, you 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 mentioned that you don't deny that there that real victimhood exists, but it's so funny how often people who have every reason to play the victim card, every cause to play the victim card, who choose to not do that, don't stay as victims because choosing to play the victim is normally what ends what ends up you actually being a victim of yourself the rest of your life and your situation and circumstance never improving um, because you're not realizing how much of the answer lies within you. So um, I obviously really appreciate that story. Really appreciated the book. Uh, where can people go to find out more about The Victim Cult? Buy the book, obviously. Thevictimcult.com. Um, always try and see if you can find a local bookstore. You can order it from there. Uh, you can do it at chapters.ca as well. Go to chapters or indigo stores. Uh, Amazon.ca has it. But uh, you know, you can start at thevictimcult.com uh, or a local bookstore and you'll get more information there for sure. Excellent. And to follow you and your ideas, because you are a person worth following, especially with things like the Aristotle Foundation. How do people follow more about you? MarkMilkey.com is where you want to go. Excellent. M-A-R-K-M-I-L-K-E dot com dot, dot com? It is. Dot com. Excellent. Perfect. So go that, check it out. Buy the Victim Cult. By the Canadian edition and the American edition, they're both great. <laughs> they both have a bunch of different information and uh, the phenomenal reads. Um, Uncle Mark, Dr. Mark Milky, <laughs> thank you so much for for coming to join the Headlock Podcast and uh, love you a ton. And I hope to have you back very quickly. I'd be happy to come back and thank you, my nephew Patrick. It's just great to you know, um, have fun with family on on a podcast. I mean, what a, what a great age we live in where we can do this. So totally. Uh, thank, thanks very much for having me. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much, Uncle Mark. You take care. Cheers. All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much again for watching. Thank you for sharing. Thank you to Mark Milky, PhD, Uncle Mark, for being on the show today. Super appreciate you taking the time to talk. Uh, go check out victimcall.com, hemlockpodcast.com. Buy the book. Check it out. Lots of phenomenal stuff in there that we didn't even get close to touching in our conversation today because um, there's uh, yeah it's a very info rich and thought rich research rich that's hard to say <laughs> book um, so go check it out for yourself uh, all the stuff we like talking about here um, about yeah victim ideology and how it wrecks everything and uh, and there's a lot of stuff that will arm your conversations um, and arm your heart against doing that in yourself, which is something I think I struggle with, I think a lot of us struggle with, is playing the victim is the easy way out. It's the easy way to get, um, it's a currency in our culture. Um, getting victim cred is an easy way to have unearned power and unearned, um, have people pay unearned attention to us because we claim victimhood uh, where we aren't necessarily victims. And often that's what keeps us as victims, is not having the mindset 
to actually overcome and to struggle through, uh, like so many of the people we talked about today, like my, my great grandmother, um, as he mentioned, which is such a cool story, obviously for me to hear, I heard little bits and fragments, but this book actually delved into more than what I'd heard. So, um, yeah, digging deep within yourself, learning to not being a victim is so important. It may be one of the most important things we can do, um, in 2021. So lots of good stuff. Check out the book. Share the podcast, five stars on Apple Podcasts, you know the drill, and we'll see you soon. Much love, y'all. Cheers. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this week's Hemlock Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends and family. Tell them to subscribe because if you loved it, then they're going to love it too, obviously. Also, head on over to iTunes to leave us a five-star rating and review. That helps us a lot with the charts. And if you're not going to leave us five stars, then forget about it. Don't worry about it and enjoy the rest of your day. Lastly, head on over to thehemlockpodcast.locals.com to become a supporter and receive access to exclusive content and ad-free versions of the Hemlock Podcast. Love you so much for listening. Let's continue to ride out this increasingly insane world with irreverence and joy. This is your host, Patrick Jolliker, and much love, y'all. Peace.